Good evening, please be seated. Numbers chapter 21. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. For those of you who are visiting and wondering, why are they in the book of Numbers? Just by way of review, we stopped actually last week at the end of uh, verse 4, but I want to uh, just quickly read through it to establish context uh, once again. We're told the king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. And then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So the children of Israel, as we remember, they are now in earnest, making their way uh, from Kadesh and uh, coming uh, to what is going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, their staging area on the east side of the Jordan River uh, in the land of Moab, immediately opposite Jericho. So uh, they're going to be going into the land, uh, conquering the land to begin that conquest through uh, Joshua in about five months. But God is getting them in place. He's making preparations for all of this. Geographically, they got to get from one place to another, and it meant passing through this region. In an unprovoked attack, the uh, Arad, the Canaanite, uh, comes up against Israel, takes some of them uh, prisoner. The response of Israel was to make a vow to the Lord and saying, If you'll indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And Moses, again, in essence, saying, uh, We don't want to defeat them for the plunder or their homes or their wealth or any of that kind of thing. Would you please give us the ability to defeat them for our own protection and the protection of your plan that is attached to our lives? And so the Lord listened. So uh, listen, there is an underlinable word. It's good to know that the Lord listens to our prayers. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. And they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And so the name of that place was called Hormah, destruction, named after the event. And then they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And so, again, they, there is a straight shot from where they are to Moab and uh, again we're talking about two to three million people it's a very hot difficult terrain they've been wandering for 40 years and it sure would have been nice to cut through Edom Edom was family they were cousins uh, in in effect and Edom said no you're not cutting through this land and so there's the battles there's the going around uh, the long way around and they they become discouraged in in the middle of all of that now discouragements are reality in the in the life of a child of God, and uh, and we're going to we're going to deal with discouragement, uh, you know, several different ways. And one of the ways we learn not to deal with discouragement is the way that they choose to, again, and that is to begin to complain against Moses and against the Lord. Now, this whole thing of going around, you know, Edom, and you ever have something happen in your life and you say, why did that have to happen to me? Well, of course, that's a rhetorical question. Everybody has that happen. Did you have one of those happen this week or this weekend? It's always going on, isn't it? And we really have to remember that our hands are, are our lives are in the hands of the Lord. He really is uh, leading us and directing us as we walk in obedience to his word. And he's doing a lot of different things that we can't really understand. The things that we would look at and say, what a discouragement. I mean, I can't believe that that happened in my life, that they would treat me this way, that I would be attacked in this, in this way. And these things are a reality in the Christian life. But in all of it, God is preparing them. Uh, he's preparing their faith. They're defeating enemies that are coming out against them to fight against them on the east side of the Jordan. They're experiencing God answering their prayer. They're growing deeper in their relationship with God and His faithfulness to them. He's also giving them not only the development of their faith, but He's also practically developing them physically for the conquest of the land. They're not going to go just walk into Canaan and... and conquer that land without a battle. Forty years earlier, their uh, family members, went, uh, their, 
parents and the former generation uh, uh, had the spies go in that represented the, the tribes and, uh, of the nation of Israel. They come back, there's Canaanites in the land, there's giants in the land, there's fortified cities in the land, and, and we're just like little grasshoppers in their eyes. And uh, all those guys are still there. It's just the next generation. Uh, Canaan is, is, is with, to the naked eye, to the human eye, is as uh, to, without looking at it with the eyes of faith, is as formidable as it was 40 years earlier. So what he's got to do is he's got to give them a chance to learn how to toughen up, to learn how to handle battles, uh, to get the taste of victory, that kind of thing. It's all preparation for what's coming. God, there is never ever wasted time in the will of God. There just isn't. God is always preparing us for what comes next. I forget about that all the time. I think it's all about me and I think it's all about right now. But God is looking at our lives and He knows what's coming next week. He knows what's coming next month. He knows what's coming next year if He should tarry. And He's preparing us for it. And again, there is something harder than God's preparation in our lives. And God's preparation in our lives can be very hard. The harder thing is to end up where God is calling us to end up and to be completely unprepared for it. God loves us enough not to allow that to happen. So this is what's going on. They're being prepared for the next step uh, in, in their life. And so they meet this difficulty and their first response and of course the easiest response to difficulty in anyone's life, and we're prone to it as Christians too, is to just begin uh, to complain. Uh, you know, the harder thing is to say, wow, uh, this is this is difficult and all. I wonder what God is preparing us for. Don't you? Couldn't you wish that was like your first thought? You know, this deeply spiritual and insightful first reaction. But the first time is, you know, and, uh, and that's what they do. They start to complain. Now, up to this point, God has overlooked some of their complaining, and even Moses has gotten in a little bit of trouble because he was, he was misreading God's attitude toward the people. But it's going to kind of catch up to them at this point. And the people spoke against God. Wow. Okay, and against Moses. And here's their complaint. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now, he's fed them for 40 years. Every day there's manna for twice as much on, on Friday, so they don't have to get on the Sabbath. They haven't worn out a pair of sandals in 40 years. An old camp? Imagine that. For 40 years, haven't worn out one pair of sandals. It's like God went to all that effort so he can kill them now. Let them die of, of thirst out in the, in the wilderness. So they don't see the fingerprints of God in terms of what he's, he's doing here. So he brought us up here to die, for there's no food. They, their complaint is against this manna they've been eating all this time. And there's no water, and, and then specifically with the manna, our soul loathes this worthless bread. Mm. You're alive. It's kept you alive. It's kept your family alive. It's sustained you for 40 years. I haven't had to work for it. A lot to be thankful for, but it was a little, they're a little tired of it. So they're going to complain against God's provision. So I know they'd want that man in Burma, wouldn't they? A little manna tonight. And so the Lord sent, as a result of their complaining, sent fiery serpents among the people. Now, they weren't serpents that were on fire. That would be very cool, wouldn't it? But it was not what it was. Probably called fiery. <laughs> so they're called fiery serpents, probably because when they bit you, the bite was, the reaction was fiery. I mean, it would uh, really uh, burn. And so he sent these fiery serpents among the people, and, and they bit the people. And as if the bite uh, wasn't painful enough, many of the people of Israel died. The bite was terminal to be bitten by uh, this, this snake. And therefore the people came to Moses and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So they confessed their, their sin. They recognized the origin, that this, this is a judgment because of their sin. And they request Moses to pray to the Lord that he may that, take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, gracious Moses. And then the Lord said to Moses, Here's what I want you to do here, the solution to the problem. 
he, he said, make a fiery serpent, and you'll see in verse 9 it's to be made out of bronze. So an image of the fiery uh, serpents that were, were biting people. It's to be set on a pole, and so uh, on an instrument of, uh, uh, to be pinned onto an instrument of, of wood. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he's bitten, when he looks at that uh, bronze serpent on the end of that wooden pole, he shall live. And the idea is when he looks in faith at that, at that, that bronze serpent. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and he put it on a pole and so it was. If a serpent bit, uh, had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. God's way of salvation was effective for their life on the basis of of simple faith. Now the interesting thing about this whole situation that's described here in the book of, of Numbers is that it is its application to Jesus and it is applied to Jesus and the salvation that he has provided for us uh, by none other than Jesus uh, himself. And so Jesus, when he spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a great uh, uh, and, and renowned religious leader, Jewish religious leader of his day. And Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, speaking of this, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a pole, on a wooden instrument, that whosoever believes in him, that is, looks to him in faith, should not perish but have everlasting life. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, again the look of faith to God's promised salvation, uh, should not perish but have everlasting life. To look uh, at him, uh, the point that Jesus is making supremely, the point is, is the look of faith. That's what he's getting through to, to Nicodemus. So just as physically they were saved in the Old Testament by looking at this uh, bronze serpent on the end of a pole and they were saved physically from the consequences of their sin. And why were they saved physically from the consequences of their sin? Because that's how God chose to save them. That salvation was powerful, not because they got the greatest bronze worker to make the you know, most fabulous kind of um, you know, uh, uh, representation of this snake or anything like that. The reason when they looked in faith uh, to that bronze serpent on the end of that pole that they were then saved is because that's how God chose to save them. And the reason that mankind is saved and saved spiritually, which is the greater salvation, by looking in faith to Jesus and his death upon the cross for our sins, the reason that we are saved as a result of that look of faith is because that is how God has chosen to save us. And so beautiful parallels between uh, the two, uh, you know, the, uh, this whole incident in the book of, of Numbers and then what it is that Jesus has done for us spiritually. It's interesting that uh, one of the things about the way that God has, had chosen to save them physically in this incident and then how he has chosen to, fig, uh, to save us spiritually is uh, sometimes you just... In order to get saved, you, I, you just have to believe that God is smarter than you. Now, I, I know that's not terribly difficult for most of us, but there are people in the world for whom that is a difficult uh, hurdle to get over. You know? Their mom and dad could tell them it shouldn't be, but, uh, but it, 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 it can be. And people can look and... You can imagine as they're there in the camp and I'm bitten by a snake and people come and say, listen, you're bitten by a snake, it's terminal, you're going to die. And, and of course, we're born into this world as Christians already bitten by a snake, the serpent in, in Genesis chapter 3. And, 
We're all born in this world terminal because of sin, terminal spiritually. And, but here they are, he gets bit physically uh, by a snake and somebody comes up and says, listen, you're bitten by the snake, that's going to kill you, you are terminal. And the only way of salvation that you have physically related to this is to look at that serpent that Moses put on, uh, uh, on the end of that stick. And a person says, what difference could that make? Stick, whatever. I mean, come on. I mean, look at that. I mean, what sense does that? How? What? I'm dying. What difference could that make related to my life? Quit wasting my time. And the guy says, "Listen, no, listen. I got bitten by a snake too. I was in the same condition that you're in, and all I did was just obey what God said. And I looked at the serpent in faith, and look, I'm okay. I testify to the truthfulness. I can't see how that makes any difference. I'd rather. What if I look at it and it doesn't work?" I'll be so embarrassed. I'm willing to die, but one thing I can't stand is to be publicly embarrassed, you know, and, and, uh, and, and I'd rather die with my dignity intact. And, and, uh, and so they, they will fight against that, even though all these people around them have been physically saved as a result of the look of faith. And the same thing happens to, I don't know how believing in Jesus can produce the forgiveness of my sins. I don't know how it can be powerful in my life. I don't know how it can change my life. It's powerful because it's God's way. And just as they had, I mean, so many people were saved as a result of the look of faith. I mean, you can look all around the world, look at how many people historically, even today, so many people getting saved just on the basis of of looking in, in faith to the Savior on the pole, on the cross, that, that the Father has sent to us. It's a beautiful passage. We could literally spend a couple hours in it, and, uh, but I'm going to spare you that, and uh, 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 drawing all of, all of the parables, but a rich, beautiful passage that really gives us insight into the salvation that, that Christ has provided. Uh, Now, the children of Israel moved on. Would you notice those words, moved on, and camped in Oboth? They're making progress. They're moving forward. So they're getting, they're on their way to Moab, and they're moving on, and it's going to just describe now. They go from this place, they go from this place, they go from this place, and they go from this place. They're moving forward in, in God's call upon their life and in their relationship with God. Are you still moving forward, your relationship with God? Or are you cruising right now? <laughs> There's no progress. I've been a Christian for 10 years, and I made tremendous progress for two years, but the rest of the time, you know, I'm pretty much identical to back then. What are you thinking? What in the world are you thinking about? (laughs) We're to be growing in this relationship with the Lord every single day, growing in this relationship in the Lord and moving forward in his, His plan and His call upon our lives. So they moved on, and they camped in Oboth. And they journeyed from Oboth, and they camped in Ijeb uh, Abarim, in the wilderness which is east of Moab, toward the sunrise. And from there they moved and camped in the valley of Zered. And from there they moved on and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. And therefore it was said, in the book of the wars of the Lord, uh, uh, Wahib in uh, Sufra, the brooks of Arnon, and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. And so here is Moses referencing and quoting from a book called the book of the wars of the Lord. And sometimes a new Christian is reading through and they say, the book of the wars of the Lord, wow, where is that? And they go back to the table of contents in the Bible and they try to find that. And it doesn't exist today. It was, it was not inspired scripture. Moses is just simply quoting. It was, it was apparently a book that was being written uh, recording the victories of the children of Israel in the ancient world. And uh, it's, it's been lost now and, and no real great loss to us except as it's quoted here. And verses 14 and 15 are the description 
of uh, or it, of of their recent victories, uh, how that was described uh, within uh, within that uh, book. And from there they went to uh, Beer, which means well, which is the uh, is the well where the Lord said to Moses, "Gather the people together, and I will give them water." And then Israel sang this song, "Spring up, O well, all of you sing to it." The well the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves, and from the wilderness they went to uh, Matana. So here is a little uh, kind of a worship song. They're going along. They apparently, as a part of their whole journey, they come to a place again where there's a need of water. Again, it's a very arid part of Israel. Not all of Israel is like that. Most often on a trip to Israel, uh, people are thinking they're, they're thinking they're going to go to Saudi Arabia, that it's just going to be sand from one end of the country to the other. And it's not like that. Israel is like a little state of California. Forests up in the north, long coastline. It's got a central valley, Jordan Valley, and it runs north to south. And, and it's got a mountainous region, and then it's got a, a desert region in the south. And they just happen to be down in the south in, in all of this uh, wandering and, uh, and, and off even further inland uh, where it's drier yet. So they ran out of water, and then the nobles, and they make note of it, wow, the, the nobles and all the people with power and authority, they took their staves and they began to dig in the ground, and, and water was produced. And they wrote a song about it. I would assume I don't write any worship songs. <laughs> you can be thankful uh, for that. Uh, so sometimes, you know, people say, so the Lord gave me this song. You say, why? You're going to hurt God's reputation. I don't know that he gave you that song. Maybe for between you and him. But, but he isn't, never gives me a song to, to write. But I assume that most worship songs are written when a person who has a gift... And, and they experience something uh, great or deep between them and God. And it's such a uh, kind of pivotal experience in their life that they've got to re- write a song related to that. And that's exactly what they did here. They said, let's put this to song and let's commit it to memory in this way, memory of this great thing that God has done for us. And from Matanda uh, to Nathaliel, from Nathalia to Bamoth, from Bamoth in the valley that is in the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which that looks down on the wasteland. So this is their progress. And then Israel uh, sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. So they come now to this next uh, kind of small nation, and uh, they ask the king, saying, Let us pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from your wells. We will go by the king's highway, which was a famous highway that ran from uh, the inland arid areas to to Israel. And so we'll just stay right on the highway until we've passed through your territory. We're we're not looking for anything from you. We're not going to touch anything. We're just looking for a little bit of grace so we can just walk through your territory. But Sihon would not allow allow Israel to pass through his territory and so Sihon gathered all his people together and they went out against Israel in the wilderness and he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel so he verbally refuses them permission and and then he launches an unprovoked attack um, against them so they come out to fight him then Israel defeated them with the edge of the sword took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. Remember uh, Jacob wrestling with, uh, with the Lord uh, over, uh, all night long there, having crossed the, the brook uh, Jabbok. So here's the mention of it. As far as the people of Ammon, for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. And so Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites and Heshbon and all of its villages. And so uh, for Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land from his hand as far as the Arnon. So it's kind of, it, it, may, it's hard, it might not even be important, but 
has never stopped me uh, before. Uh, so what you have is they're kind of in the region of Moab, but they are fighting against the Amorites. And the reason they're fighting against the Amorites is the Amorites have conquered a section of Moab and made it a part of their own. And so that's what's going on. So here is the proverb that was written or the song that was written by the Amorites when they conquered the Moabites. So you say, what's the big deal for us? Here's the reason it's in the Word of God. Because the children of Israel have just defeated these people, and these people were not just, uh, you know, some uh, group of un- unarmed farmers or something like that. This, these, in, in defeating the Amorites who had defeated Moab, they have defeated a military power that was capable of defeating other nations around it. In other words, God's taken them from single A, He's taken them to double A, He's taken them to triple A in terms of them getting their confidence in, in again, His promises, His call upon their life, and their ability to, uh, you know, wage warfare. So they didn't just go on some elementary school camp and rob kids of their lunch money. Uh, they really took on some real tough guys and, uh, and defeated them. And so this was the proverb that was written uh, concerning this group of people that they defeated. Come to Heshbon, let it be built, let the city of Sihon be repaired. For fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It Consumed are of Moab, the lords of the heights of Arnon. Woe to you, Moab! You have perished, O ch- uh, people of Shemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity. And so Sihon, king of the Amorites, uh, to Sihon, king of the Amorites, but we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as uh, Dibon, and then we laid waste as far as Nofath, which reaches to Mediba. So they have now conquered a, a significant and... and uh, uh, you know, an army with, with great reputation that has put the fear of others uh, in, in, in their hearts. And thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites, and then Moses sent out to spy Jazer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there, continuing the conquest. And then they turned and went up the way to Bashan, and so Og, king of Bashan, went out against them. He doesn't even, you know, wait for uh, some kind of a permission to come through. Word is getting out that these people are showing up and, and they're having their way on, on things. And, and so they, the MO is to come and ask politely for something like this, and then if you attack them, they're, they're conquering. He looks and says, well, maybe we're being too patient on the front end to listen to, uh, to their offer here, so we'll just surprise attack them, and maybe we can wipe them out. Now, Og, we're told elsewhere in the Old Testament, uh, was quite a guy. Uh, what we know about him is that he slept on an iron bed, Okay. Sissies don't sleep on iron beds. We assume he had some kind of blankets or something down on it. But the significant thing is the iron bed was 14 feet tall. So this guy's like a giant. So again, Israel's facing new things, just like we're facing new things. As we're obeying God, going forward, you think, all right, whew, got through that one. Uh, I... Well, I've been walking with God for two years, and uh, probably, I've probably seen just about everything you're going to see in the Christian life. I remember when I, I worked for the phone company, and I was, uh, one of the top positions I had was a cable splicer. And they used to say that as a cable splicer, it would take you um, typically two full years before you had run into just about everything you were going to run into. And uh, on that job so that when you woke up in the morning and you headed to work, you didn't have to worry about what are they going to throw at me today that I might have, this is the first time that I'm seeing it and I can mess something up. So after two years, you pretty much had been exposed to everything. It would be really nice if the Christian life was like that. You said, I got my, like, AA in the Christian life. And uh, now I don't see anything new after that. But it's always moving us on to the next thing. It's always faith, the next giant, the next way that God is wanting to develop our 
our faith. And so now they come up against this guy. He's not a patient man. He just outright attacks them. And the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him. Now, why would God say that except that they uh, feared this enemy? So even though they've got a history now with God and a series of victories with God, they're not immune from fear. You may sit here tonight and you're looking at a situation. Og came on your radar screen in the last 48 hours. You're terrified. Related. You've got a long history with God and all, but you've never met an Og before. Let's come out and just attack you this way. And, and so there is that a place of fear. And the Lord knew they needed to hear it. It's very wonderful to hear the Lord speak to our hearts and say, Listen, there's no need for you to fear that. Don't, don't, you, don't you fear him, and, and I'll, I'll give you a, a good reason why. For I have delivered him into your hand. It's a good reason, all right? With all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, uh, king of the Amorites who dwell at Heshbon. And so they defeated him, his sons, and all his people, until there was no survivor uh, left him and they took possession of his land and so God promised them victory just as God has given us so many promises related to victory in the New Testament and God is faithful to his his promises to us There's, there is no reason uh, no um, good or bad reason uh, to fear I'm not saying that we don't do it because it's a it's a response that we have but we can't let it uh, just run in our lives. There's no reason for people who have the kind of promises that we have from God to live in fear of, of any physical anything in this world or even spiritual anything in this world. Our God is going to stand with his promises uh, toward us. So God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, the Bible says, but power, love, and a sound mind. The Bible says that if we uh, do fear, it's because we haven't been made perfect in love. John, John wrote that. To, to fear in a situation, in a child of God, one of the things that that passage reminds me of, and God will remind me of it regularly, is when fear begins to want to uh, creep up or even begin to take control, uh, the reason that I'm fearing is because I don't realize just how much God loves me. And he loves you. He loves us as a father, and he's very committed to us. So perfect love, the Bible says, casts out fear. When we realize how perfectly and maturely and completely God loves us. So let's think about that a little bit tonight. So victory, victory, victory here is the children of Israel. They're, they're making uh, their way and uh, they've experienced a series of victories over the, some number of the Canaanites there on the east side of the Jordan River and the uh, Amorites and Og of Bashan and God's developing their faith and good things are happening and all and you think, all right, this is, this is just terrific. And one of the things that we have to realize is that as God's people in this world, we are a watched people. Now, don't look at that and say, oh boy, I hate it that people watch me. I hate the fishbowl as a Christian. The idea is to love the fishbowl, eh, kind of like it, but love the fishbowl because it gives a chance for people to see God at work in our lives. So they're doing all these great things. It's great and um, and wonderful things are happening between them and God. But there's another dynamic to kind of a victorious Christian life like they're experiencing here and the influence of a victorious Christian life becoming greater and greater in a family, in a neighborhood, on a job place, in a church, whatever it might be. And that is, it's going to get you noticed. It doesn't just get you noticed by God, doesn't just get you noticed by other Christians, but it's going to get you noticed by God's enemies. And that's exactly what happens uh, here. And uh, they've got all of these victories, and someone else in the land of Moab, a guy by the name of Balak, is watching all of this along with the people of Moab. They're tracking the progress here of of, uh, of the children of Israel, and as they're watching that, that progress uh, occur, they feel threatened by it, and, and they're going to rise up and, and oppose, oppose it. Never, ever in our ministries, in our service to the Lord, 
never fall asleep to the fact that you have enemies by virtue of God's use of you. Never fall asleep to that after great victory because the opposition is coming. That's just the way that it goes. And uh, sometimes, you know, a time of great victory, God uses us or some kind of a great thing like that. You say, wow, I'm just going to kind of relax for a couple of days or something. Don't do it. (laughs) Say, Lord, thank you. You used me in that situation. I know I got to draw closer than you to you than ever because there's going to be an attack against me related uh, to this. And, And so all of this is being watched. And that's what we come to in chapter 22. Then the children of Israel, they moved and they camped on the plains of Moab, on the side of the Jordan, across from Jericho. Kachunk! They just get put right into place now. They're not going to move for five months now, and, uh, because they're going to go straight on across into Jericho. So they finally get planted where God wants them to be planted for the conquest of of the land. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So we're watched in this world. They were watched. We saw God's favor upon their lives. So he saw Israel one defeat after another, and even defeating as, as strong a, a military as the military of the Amorites, the military that had just defeated them sometime earlier. And notice the reaction of, of these people to God's favor upon the children of Israel. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people uh, because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. They looked and they, they, isn't it? I think it's wonderful to realize, you know, I think we get pounded in this culture because the culture is becoming more and more secular. And, uh, and I think that people, if they, don't, if they don't know it consciously, they know it intuitively in some kind of a way, that Christianity represents an obstacle to them from turning this country and the people in this country a certain way, away from God, into secularism, into humanism, and these, and these kind of things. And so often we can look at these people and we can think, wow, they're fearless. They're so bold. We should be so afraid of them. And then it's interesting when God will periodically in the Scriptures will give us a glimpse at the hearts of the enemy of enemies of God's people at how they are driven by dread at God's use of people like us. I don't know how many of you saw the the movie Expelled that's been at the uh, theaters recently. Karen and I got a chance to go and see it the other night. And it was very, very fascinating. And, but as you get kind of to the end and they're, they're interviewing all of these guys and I mean, they're, when you get down all the way under all the layers, you know, to uh, what they believe and why they believe there, there is so much fear down there. There is a fear of God. There is a fear of what you are about, the God you serve, uh, that we would flex our muscles in the culture, that they would be, you know, kind of set back in their plans and ideas. And it's, it's all there. And uh, interesting when we get a glimpse at it, and it's happening right here in, in this passage. They are sick with dread because of the children of Israel. You know how it must be so frustrating for the devil. You know, he never has a good day, and I'm happy about that. And, he, and, and also for people that have aligned with him, whether they realize they've aligned with him or, or not. You look, look at the amount of money and time and power and effort that has been, has been exerted and is being exerted tonight all around the world to put out this light of Christians and the light of the Bible and the body of Christ. How much effort there is and God keeps it alive. They can't defeat it. And so they've they got to label us as, you know, ignorant and unenlightened and uneducated and, you know, we're just, 
this side of barbarians and we can't even add, let alone multiply, and you know, all these kind of proud attitudes. And, but the fact of the matter is, they think they're up against us. It's the, their problem is much bigger than that. They're up against God. It's the, when God uses people like us, and our simple faith in Him, and walking with Him, and serving Him, and the kingdom keeps advancing all around the world despite every effort, it is, has to be frustrating for them. And, I, in a perverse way, I enjoy frustrating them. And so, I, I try and do my part uh, by walking with the Lord. And, and so, this is their condition. And so, Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now, this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. Now, how much of a, how much of a chance does a green uh, blade of grass stand before a hungry ox? No chance. Bye-bye. A green grass? And that environment you know we're going they're going to they're going to eat us up we have no chance of survival in the light of their numbers in the light of of their their god and and so they see kind of the handwriting on on the wall and so uh, and Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time now one of the interesting things about uh, Balak's fear here is that it's completely uh, unnecessary. He fears the children of Israel. Uh, he has, is ruling over the people of, of Moab and, uh, uh, and, and king of, of the Moabites at the time. And he's thinking, we are the next entree on uh, Israel's menu. They're just going to, they're going to eat us up. But the fact of the matter is, is that because the Moabites were descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot, because they were blood relatives of Israel, God had forbidden Israel from attacking the Moabites. The Moabites were never going to be attacked by the children of Israel. In uh, Genesis chapter 19, the Lord uh, spoke and said, The firstborn uh, bore a son and called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day, speaking of them as descendants of Lot. Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 9, Then the Lord, Moses said, said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Possession. And so, if he had just left well enough alone, then there, everything that follows wouldn't have happened. And, but he, he thinks they're just going to attack us. I, I think about how many needless battles are fought because two people won't communicate with one another. I, on, I honestly think, and I, I may be statistically wrong, but I don't think by much. I honestly think that 90% of the conflict that occurs within a church body and within the body of Christ could be solved overnight if the people involved would just communicate with one another. Just like the Bible says, if you have a problem with your brother, go to him. Talk with him or her about it. Let it get solved on that level. If others need to be involved to help you solve that, then the church is there uh, to help in that. But try and solve it one-on-one -on -one just, just by communicating. And, uh, and, and you think about how, you know, uh, needlessly and, and uh, blindly people will just move on something. They're reading another person's mind, and I just know that they're thinking this, and I just know that when they did that, that they meant this. And, and then, I mean, we're fabulous at reading all kinds of things into nothing and, and all, and this whole thing is escalating in a person's mind of this gigantic thing. And if they just went up to the person and said, Listen, are you trying to kill me? No, I just... I. I sneezed and I really didn't mean anything about, I didn't, it wasn't, I, there was no malice in my heart toward you at all. I didn't even know that you were in, in, in the room. So if they had just communicated, hey, you guys, you, you've won a whole string of victories over your enemies and uh, one after another and we can't help but have watched it and witnessed all this stuff. You guys thinking about attacking us? No, 
no way. We're not going to attack you. God has forbidden us from attacking you. Cool. Very cool. Have, have a nice day. Yeah, you too. You have a nice day too, you know. And they just go off and they have a nice pizza together, a bowl of pasta, something like that, and everything would have been okay. But instead he's, got, he's reading and this and, and, uh, and he's getting upset and afraid about something that doesn't have a basis in reality. Just one conversation could solve the whole thing. You think about how much that goes on in a marriage sometimes or in a uh, uh, relationship between uh, a child and a parent and a parent and a child or in a business relationship. And certainly in the body of Christ as, as I mentioned. And what we're going to read about here, God's going to work it all together for good, but it's so needless if just two people had sat down and talked something through. That might be one or two of us here tonight. God just speaks related to that. I do feel that when Gail was here a couple of weeks ago on the Sunday morning, he talked in that whole realm of forgiveness on things. I do feel that, and I told him afterwards, I said, I, I, I really, I, I think the, the Lord was very much in that. The last time we had had the Lord's Supper, I, uh, I went home and was just praying about the evening and, and stuff like that, and kind of debriefing with the Lord. And uh, I said, Lord, anything you want to speak to me and all? And, and I felt like he spoke to my heart and said, the, the next time you have the Lord's Supper, I want you to address the issue of forgiving one another in the body of Christ. I felt he was just saying, you've got, you got more of that going on here than you realize, and I want it to be taken care of. In the body. So I spoke to Gail, and I, I didn't go into all of that with him, but I said I think that was a very timely uh, word from the Lord to us as a body. So if, and so let me just once again put it forward as not just words on a page or just words in a sermon, but God may be speaking to some of us. God is very jealous about his body. He's very serious about the health of his body. It's interesting related to the Lord's Supper that um, when he talked about taking the elements, the symbols of Jesus' body and blood in an unworthy manner, not discerning the body of Christ. And what he meant by that is a person taking the Lord's Supper, looking at the price that God paid to have this bride called the body of Christ, his investment in our lives, and then for me to be tearing it apart uh, through bitterness and unforgiveness toward others. And it's really serious business. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, some of you are sick because of this. In other words, God was smiting them physically to minimize their influence, their destructive influence in a local church. He said, some of you, some have even been killed as a result of it. God just said, I'll take the whole influence out. On their way to heaven, they're going to be in heaven, all that's great, but this person is going to do nothing but bad all the time to my people in that local church. I'll take them home. So that's, that's how serious it is on, on things. So the importance here of, of, uh, of communication. So that's, they, they don't do that. And uh, so Balak, the son of Zippor, king of the Moabites at that time, and he sent to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, tell you, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth, and they're settling next to me. And therefore, please come at once. And then here's the purpose to curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I might be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he, who, he whom you curse is cursed. Wow, that's tremendous. Here is a guy, when it talks about Balaam, he's a very unusual person in the Scriptures. He's a person that was used by God. Uh, uh, we have to remember, um, I, I don't, certainly don't look at Balaam as a saved person or a covenant person with God. Um, it, uh, God spoke uh, to and through uh, other pagans that weren't in relationship with him. God isn't limited to that. Um, I think of Bimelech, of Gerar, I think of Pharaoh, and others in the scriptures that God uh, spoke to and through, though they, they were not, you know, so-called Christians or in, in relationship with, with God. But God did use this guy. His heart is all messed up, but he does have a reputation uh, and a very 
uh, uh, widespread reputation for being able to come on a scene, look at a group of people or an individual, pronounce a curse upon them, and they end up cursed. Now, don't attribute that to uh, to Jehovah or to the uh, Lord of the Old Testament related to that. It could have been any number of pagan gods that he was tapping into. He could also come to someone, pronounce a blessing on them, and they would be blessed. Now, this city that he comes for, that's described, comes from there in verse 5, Pethor, is a city of Mesopotamia. It's about 400 miles away from Moab. So, uh, if he is all the way over in Mesopotamia and Moab sends messengers 400 miles to get this guy, it gives you an idea of, of his fame and of his effectiveness in, in this realm as a prophet or as, as a seer. Probably this is describing his hometown where he came from. He is probably living much closer to Moab at this time because we're going to see in just a... a, a Seven days. <laughs> we won't get there tonight. We're going to see here shortly that he, he is, uh, is going to come to Balak, the king of Moab, but he's going to come on the back of a donkey. You rode donkeys for short journeys in those days. He's also going to be traveling with two people that are walking on foot. Uh, if you're going to travel 400 miles, you do that by caravan. So he's probably much, uh, much more uh, closely located. But this is, what, uh, this is his reputation. This is what he's called to do, to curse these people. And, and Balak is willing to go to any kind of uh, extreme in terms of finding him and paying him in order to accomplish it. And so that's the message that's been given. And so the elders of Moab and uh, the elders of Midian departed with a diviner, diviner's fee in their hand. So they got the money and they came to Balaam and they spoke to him the words of Balak. So they're faithful to deliver that uh, word to him about what God is wanting him to do. And he said to them, lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. And so the princes of Moab uh, stayed with Balaam. So we'll stop there tonight. And uh, next week, same bat time, same bat station, uh, we'll uh, tear into it. It gets very, uh, we, if we go into it now, you just got to roll with the thing, and I don't want to break it up. So beautiful. Some of you thought we'd get to at least uh, further along than we did, but we didn't. And so, uh, but we'll, Lord willing, pick it up. Uh, next week, but beautiful lessons that we've seen thus far, at least in the passage, to have, have upon our hearts, set the stage now for just the beauty of what happens next. Balaam, again, this kind of a, a tough guy to, to figure out. God used him, and yet his, his motives were terrible, and yet God is going to use him to pronounce uh, four of the most beautiful prophecies ever prophesied over the children of Israel. That guy, he couldn't get a curse out of his mouth <laughs> to save his life. And, uh, and that's the way that, that it is, uh, you know, for us. One of the fascinating things about this, and then we'll have the worship team uh, lead us in worship for kind of meditating uh, on what we've seen tonight. He's going to come in. No, I won't even go into it because it's ridiculous. We'll talk about it next week. Man, it was, and it was really good too. So, but anyway, if the worship team comes forward.